Commence primary ignition. Depend greatly on our own point of view. You must unlearn what you have learned. I'm looking forward to completing your training. Welcome to Coruscant Community College, a new podcast that focuses on studying Star Wars as text. I'm Craig Dickinson. And I'm Matt Leader. Today on the show, we'll begin a series of in-depth examinations of the Star Wars films, starting with a deconstruction of Episode One: The Phantom Menace. In addition to sharing our general thoughts on the film and its place in the larger Star Wars canon, we'll be breaking down this film by giving special focus to the aspects that we covered in Season 1. So let's go ahead and look at cinematography. So I wanted to take... Uh, this film and break it down in exactly the same type of way that we did uh, in the first season. So I've looked at composition, color, and camera work, and I'll just go ahead and talk about composition first. And some things that stood out to me immediately were uh, the circles, the way that people are arranged, specifically Anakin uh, before uh, the Jedi Council when he's being tested. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a scene that we saw in the first trailer, and from doing a little bit of research I'm finding that, I mean, it's a very Kurosawa thing, especially like Seven Samurai. It's a very striking image. You don't usually see people standing in that particular way with one person in the middle. It's a very uh, significant thing. And some of the things that uh, I made connections with that was, it kind of reminds me of like the Knights of the Round Table and that all the Jedi kind of have this equality thing happening, even though we know there's different different levels, you know, that Yoda and Mace Windu are higher than some of the other ones, but they all kind of have an equal place in that council. But if you're in the middle of that, it's going to be a really intimidating thing. It also reminds me when Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are talking to Boss Nass and they are sitting in, cir- in like a circle and they're talking to what I can only assume is the council for the Gungans. And Obi-Wan mentions that the Gungans ought to care about the Naboo because they form a symbiote circle where everyone affects the other. And so like they should care. Just going along with that idea of like circles, the round table, this idea of equality, but I also think symbiotic relationship. Yeah, that's really cool. So you have this like very literal circle and this metaphorical circle thing happening at the same time. It's driving that point home. Moving on. I mean, that's, that's the big thing I had for composition. Did you have anything else for composition? Um, I, I just kind of focused in on how there was a little bit of uh, high angle, low angle being used uh, in the scenes with Boss Nass, both in the beginning with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, but also with, with Queen Amidala coming to ask them for help and right. how he is in this position of power. And I kind of see the Gungan people as there's like this separateness between them and the Naboo. And this was something I was going to bring up later as far as um, set design. But it seems to me that there, you know, there's these two kind of tribes on Naboo and the Gungan get this feeling of kind of the quote unquote lesser tribe. Like they feel a bit aggrieved. They, they feel like the Naboo think they're better than them. You see that in basically most of the film that they are actually higher than everyone else. You know, they, they have the ability to, to be helpful and to give the aid that the characters in the movie need. 
And so the, the camera work actually kind of shows that a little bit more than anything else. That's interesting. So you're getting kind of the subliminal messaging uh, that may not line up with what, you know, the characters themselves might be feeling, but it's right. kind of letting us know exactly where we should be, where we should be focusing. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, regarding color, uh, the thing that I really focused on with this, with this viewing was the lighting. And when I saw that, the circle scene that I mentioned earlier the, in, in the Jedi Temple, a thing that struck me immediately. So there's multiple things. That go, obviously, in, in, in any of these shots, there's multiple things going on. Uh, so beyond the composition, I noticed that the whole thing is kind of shrouded in shadow, uh, which is interesting. Like why it's dark uh, made, me, made me question that. And, you know, from later context, knowing, you know, that the Jedi are, are not uh, what they used to be, that they're, you know, their power to connect with the force is diminishing. It seemed to me to be symbolic that the Jedi's understanding of what's going on with Anakin and what they should be doing is, is kind of a little bit in the dark and you're kind of, you're getting that message uh, through the lighting in that situation. That's the way I'm going to interpret that. And kind of continuing with that is when, uh, while that's, you know, while that's happening, you know, it's Qui-Gon and Anakin, or before that, rather, Qui-Gon and, and Obi-Wan walk outside after they've kind of presented Anakin as a candidate. Uh, and then the sun is setting. I remember hearing that they'd actually, when in later versions, that's another thing, you know, how Lucas is continually tweaking the films, or had been, that they even made that scene a little darker uh, for later versions to just really emphasize uh, that the sun is setting uh, outside quite literally uh, while it's metaphorically setting on the on the Jedi Order, that the Jedi Order's time uh, is coming to an end. That exact thing stood out to me too. Uh, I mean, Sunset's kind of a classic symbol of endings. And Anakin joining the Jedi Order, the fact that Qui-Gon kind of brings him in despite the challenges from the Jedi, the Jedi Masters, right? It does, it's the very beginning of the end as far as the order itself. Although we know that Anakin does go on to bring balance to the force eventually. Right. Uh, and then the last thing I had for color actually is, is a color and that is the gold of, of Odo Gunga on underground underwater rather. And what stuck out to me is, is if you read the star Wars heresies by Paul F. McDonald, which I highly recommend that book uh, for anybody who's a fan of the prequels or who, if you want to give it to someone who's not a fan of the prequels and say, see, this is why these movies are good. Talks a lot about intentionality in that as well, but he draws the parallel between the gold ball shape uh, of the city and the frog prince uh, fable. Mm -hmm. And so that Jar Jar becomes, you know, Jar Jar is that more than he seems uh, character in this film, that he's the frog prince and there's the gold ball underwater and all of that's tied together. Kind of subconsciously, we, we make that connection. Okay, and then regarding camera work, uh, I noticed a lot of interesting things, I think, this time that I'd never watched before. I don't think I've watched Phantom Menace this critically regarding camera work uh, until now. And just kind of starting from early in the film, there's one uh, tracking shot uh, during the invasion of Naboo that starts in space and goes to the planet. It's a pretty famous shot. It's, I think it's in the trailers. I've seen the shot a hundred times. Uh, but just watching the film and, and thinking about how we've talked many, many times, how especially the original trilogy is, is very documentary style, just, you know, put the camera in the corner and just let the stuff happen where well, this is, is as dynamic as anything you've ever seen Lucas do. 
So it's it's interesting that he makes that stylistic stylistic choice and that difference here in this film. And uh, moving forward, there is what I thought was a really interesting thing is as you see the Federation Army heading into to Theed, the camera pans up and goes up above them, which kind of lets you see the the scale of the army. You can see how many of those tanks they have, how many droids are coming in. And then it immediately cuts to Theed, which is shot at a low angle, uh, which I thought, this is I interpret that as it's showing a, a moral superiority to it. You know, it's looking down at the Federation to show them. I mean, they're very strong, but morally speaking, like they have the low ground, you know, and then Theed has, has the high ground, morally speaking. I also had the fact that they had, there's a, a you know, very uh, famous shot of, of Amidala in a very wide shot where you see her very small uh, looking out the window, which I interpret as that she's feeling helpless uh, and very alone. I mean, there's no other droids or creatures or other humans in that scene at all. Her advisors are gone. They're all gone. She's all by herself. Uh, as she's looking out there and then it immediately cuts to a full shot. So it's, you know, pretty much just head to toe and you can see her body language and she hangs her head. Uh, so the next, uh, next aspect that we're going to focus on is, is the sound where we have the effects soundtrack and vocal sounds. And some of the things that stood out to me, uh, is the, the sound effect of unloading the battle droids right before that final battle with uh, with the Gungans. It's a very mechanical sound. It's very, very distinctive. I can, I can hear it right now in my head. Uh, and if you've seen Phantom Menace a few times, you probably can too. And some of my favorite, well, I think my favorite sounds in, in the film are the, the pod racer engines and especially like the Doppler effect as they're going by the screen. So there's one thing going back to the battle droids real quick that I caught that I hadn't noticed before. So when Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan first intercept Queen Amidala on their way outside of Feed, and they are taking out the battle droids, the last two droids scream when they get taken out. <laughs> have you ever noticed that? I don't think I have. What part is that again? So, you know, when the Trade Federation first comes to Feed and they take Amidala and they're like, take her away. Right. And they're like walking out of the palace. And then Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon come and cut down all the battle droid guards. Like the last two droids, I think it's like a force push, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. And they like squawk, scream. It's really weird. Like I don't recall any other battle droid making that kind of sound. That's great. And that's something that like really stood out to me. And I do think that like in this movie in particular, the battle droids don't have much personality at all. And by... The third episode, they've got a lot more of a quirky, humorous personality. And so, I don't know, it, that that particular sound effect just seems kind of out of place. Like, it would have made way more sense in episode three where they're, they got, a, you know, a little more personality in them. But not so much in this one. Right. It's just seeding that for you, right? <laughs> There's the payoff coming. All right, so uh, the next the next sub aspect uh, for sound is is the soundtrack, essentially the music, and of course we have to talk about Duel of the Fates, which is, you know, that's the that's the big theme from uh, from this movie. I don't know, you know, how much I can say about it, 
because uh, I can't really break down what it is uh, musically. I don't have that background, but that's the thing that I always, when we start watching the films with kids, I'm like, okay, this is going to have some new themes in it. One, the biggest one is is the duel of the fates, and to think about you know the title and what that actually means that we're we're fighting over the fate of you know probably Anakin. We can talk about that and and the fate of the galaxy really. One uh, that always stands out to me is uh, Palpatine and Maul's introduction, the music that's playing over. Mm -hmm. And I want to say that it's the same track that plays when Ben visits... um, Exegol. Exegol. When he first visits Exegol, I believe it's the same chanting kind of music. I could be wrong, but it's definitely similar. And just that music right there always kind of grabs me. And that's the one thing I think this movie just knocks out of the park totally and completely. I mean, I would put the score for The Phantom Menace up there, like Duel of the Fates, like you said, might be one of the most iconic tracks in all of Star Wars. Right. I mean, it's it's that good. But I think Phantom Menace has these little, and I think that's, you know, you're talking about planting the seeds for later films. I think musically, those seeds really bear fruit in later films as it, the the score kind of matures and references back to things from this film. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing when we, when we watch the film with, with the kids and, and they've seen a couple of films already that we've introduced a leitmotif already. Uh, and so that's, it's a fun thing to, okay, now listen for that same music again in this, in this film in a different context. A couple of things that I pulled out was, you know, when you hear the force theme for the first time in this film, uh, when Qui-Gon's plunging his lightsaber into the the door and, and you know, the, uh, the Nemoidians are like, they're still coming through. Uh, you know, the, the force theme su- uh, surges right there. That's, that's always a very powerful thing. And, uh, you know, chronologically speaking, that's, that would be the first time we'd hear the force theme if you watch them in that order too. Uh, but when, to think about, uh, to go back to what you said about when Palpatine's on screen or when Sidious, I shouldn't say Palpatine because they're treated as <laughs> two yet, different characters yeah. in this film. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, when Sidious is on screen, you can hear snippets of his theme from the end of Return of the Jedi or from whenever he's on Return of the Jedi. Um, I'm not sure if there's two separate tracks. So well, when we get to Rise of Skywalker, I'll definitely be listening to hear if I'm hearing that same thing. But what I've always enjoyed is that you get at the end of this film, you get the uh, the Augie's Great Municipal Band playing, uh, you know, they're having the parade at the end, that that is the same song that was playing when Sidious was on screen. It's Palpatine's theme, but, you know, played in a different key and played happy. Right. And so, you know, this great irony that, like, they're celebrating the victory of Palpatine. Um, they just don't knowing, know it yet. <laughs> they just yeah. don't know it yet, uh, which is cool. The Trade Federation theme... Uh, is a great theme. Let's but going back to that scene I'd mentioned earlier when they're when they're landing on Naboo, and the thing that I always think of now I can't I can't not think about it. And we'll talk about it when we do Attack of the Clones too. Is it's the same music that we hear uh, when Obi Wan's overlooking the clones on Kamino, which is you know a very interesting thing that you have. Well, these are the bad guys, and this is their theme song. Well, these are the good guys, and they have the same theme song. Right. You're supposed to be a little bit, it's a little jarring and you know, it's supposed to be. Yeah. And then, uh, the last, the last thing I want to point out here is something that blew me away when I heard it. I, I didn't recognize it until, uh, it was pointed out to me. One of my favorite, uh, leitmotif moments 
in uh, in Phantom Menace, though, is when you hear Anakin's theme, because Anakin has his own theme too, is that at the end of certain snippets of it, you can actually hear a little bit of the Imperial March. And so the Imperial March is embedded in Anakin's theme. I was like, that's exceptionally cool that Williams put that in there. And thanks you know, to David Collins for pointing that out on Star Wars Oxygen. So I can't not hear it now, but I never heard it until it was pointed out to me. And then, of course, the last last uh, sub-aspect is the vocal sounds, which, of course, I have to mention the Wilhelm scream because it's in all <laughs> these films. And so that's just something we point at, uh, point out to students, too. Or they, they start to get better at it, to recognizing that on Naboo when one of the Naboo fighters gets a guy gets shot and falls and makes the sound. But I also wanted to point out how we have the announcers at the pod race is kind of a, a type of voiceover. I mean, they're actually on screen, but they're really there serving the purpose of doing kind of some some narration for us. And we don't see them the whole time. So it's kind of a in-universe voiceover. Kind of a little way to disguise narration that you might not normally have, but to still kind of guide the viewer along with what's going on. Yeah, exactly. So moving on to performance, um, we have our sliding scale of acting, with static, dramatic, and melodramatic. Uh, what did you have for, did you have anything specific for static? Uh, everyone, (laughs) (laughs) this, this is the, this is one thing that I, I really struggle with, with this film is that I feel like a lot of the performances are very static and the emotions that I feel like probably should be shown are very muted and it's not necessarily every character every time. And I was really thinking about Anakin, right? And you know, I'm, I'm willing to cut child actors a lot of slack because they're children. But I also couldn't help but think also just a little bit why Anakin wasn't cast older, like as an older actor. Because I was thinking about this and I just, I can't help. It, it pulls me out of the film to watch Natalie Portman, who I think is 14 in canon. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. She doesn't look 14. I mean, she looks like a young woman, right? A young adult. But she doesn't look 14. And Anakin, I believe, is 10 in canon. Yeah, I think he's nine, but... Nine, nine or 10. Yeah. And he looks nine or 10. I mean, he he looks like a, a child. And it just, it pulls me out every time. <laughs> like, are those two flirting with each other? <laughs> like, what, what am I watching? So, like, the, the moments between Anakin and Padme just do not work for me. And specifically, there was a point right after Anakin leaves Tatooine and he pulls out the necklace, right? And he mentions how he cares about Padme and Padme goes, I care for you too. And I'm like, I don't, I don't feel it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't know if they're flirting with each other or if it's like a brother, sister. I don't, I don't know. Right. Right. And it just does not work for me in that sense of, you aren't showing me the emotions that you're feeling. So I'm not sure how to interpret this even. And and then there's other moments where I feel like Anakin really nails it on the head with, he's a kid and he's like super excited to meet Obi-Wan for the first time. And like, it just, he hits more of a dramatic note of, oh, he's just excited to be around new people. Like that's such a kid thing to do. I would say that the person who's probably most consistent as far as the acting and like hitting that emotional beat is Boss Nass. <laughs> okay. For me, he 
he he's he's upset and he's he's like annoyed that Jar Jar's back. And then when uh, Padme slash Queen Amidala comes and kneels before him, you can just see he's like, oh, you you don't think you're better than me. And I I think I don't know who his voice actor is, uh, but the animators and the voice actor I think were just pitch perfect with Boss Nass up and down. And I, I might say a close second was Jar Jar, even though he was quite melodramatic the entire time. I think that's the direction he was given. I think that's the way he was written. And so uh, Ahmad Best, I believe, is the actor. Yeah, for Jar Jar. Uh, voice actor and for acting, quote unquote, on set. And I think he hits his mark. Like, I think he does exactly what he was asked to do. And even though he's very melodramatic as Jar Jar, I think that it brings that over-the-top comedy, even if that sometimes feels a little jarring and out of place at certain moments in the film, I think that's exactly what he was supposed to do, and I think he really hits it. Okay. You know, it's it's interesting because I wonder if, if your opinion will change if you ever have a nine-year-old in your house. Because <laughs> I have a 10-year-old who's recently a nine-year-old, and I see a lot of the same kind of all-over-the-placeness uh, to me, it feels natural, and maybe maybe I'm looking at it with blinders on. Uh, but I mean, I get what you're saying. Like there, there is a little bit of 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 cringiness in in the nine and fourteen, and you know, maybe they were the same age. I, I it would be a different thing. I, I get. I guess for me, it's it's easier to justify if I go, well, you know, he's clearly below her station in multiple ways. Does that have to have an age gap? I don't know. That was the choices that they made. Right. But yeah, I mean, we talk about, I just had for, for static and we've talked about this before. Uh, and then we have in, in, uh, the great video that you made, uh, where we look at, you know, Natalie Portman being static. We talked about that a lot. Uh, and as far as that being very intentional too, with the whole Amidala persona, uh, and the, the fact that you can have the handmaidens basically step into that role because, you know, the baseline is, is so flat for that it's there's not a whole lot of ticks or or personality that comes through and like it's very much a flat character that you know it's interchangeable i guess not so much in this film i had i had ian mcdermott down for melodramatic but it's not so much in this film i think it just i always think of melodramatic with him that he's just chewing scenery there's a little bit when he's sidious palpatine he's pretty subdued for the most part he's probably more on the dramatic side uh in hindsight but I just put Liam Neeson for dramatic because he just, he feels to me like he hits the sweet spot. He's very charismatic, but not, not overly so. And I, I think some of that too is just, oh, I really love that character, Qui-Gon Jinn. So there's, there's definitely some different things going on. It's a different style of acting. We've talked about this too, that it's not nineties or, you know, 2020 style acting. It's, it's very, you know, thirties and forties style acting, which, uh, can be a bit jarring for a modern audience. And I think this might be the one, one category we, I think we probably disagree the most on. Yeah. Uh, Cause I think I have a, a more critical view towards the acting and the performances in general. I actually, I tend to agree with you about Ian McDermott as Palpatine Sidious. And I do think that you're right where it is more melodramatic in later films, but I even get a sense of that. Just the voice change he does when he's acting as Sidious it feels like this over-the-top menacing, 
you know, voice. Mm-hmm. And he sounds so kind of like your old grandpa as Palpatine. <laughs> that I do, I, I see where you're going with that. Sure. And I do agree with it. But I think it's kind of, it's a wonderful cheesiness in that. It's, he, <laughs> but you're right, where he like, he chews the scenery and, and he owns it and it's a fun performance. Yeah. And, and that's kind of also where I come from with like Jar Jar a little bit. Like it at least seems like all my best is having fun with it. Yeah. And I, you know, I look at Natalie Portman, who I think is a wonderful actress. She doesn't look like she's having fun. You know, there's, there's very little life in her performance right. in this movie. And, and that's not all on the actors. That's the script. That's the way it's shot. That's the way it's directed. There's a lot that goes into performance other than just what the actor's doing. Right. So, you know, don't interpret this as, oh, they're a bad actor or whatever. That's not what I'm trying to say. But in this particular film, I feel like they're under emoting. It's hard for me to see that. And that happens uh, in other films too. I feel like Brie Larson in Captain Marvel had sure. moments where she was more static than she should have been. She under emoted. But agree. it also felt like for the most part in that movie, she was closer to that dramatic of hitting her beats. But there were moments when she would slip, right? And so it's easier for me to forgive that if it's a couple moments within a movie. And I felt like the opposite here where everything felt under emoted. And then there were moments when they were hitting their beats. So I struggled with that. Sure. So I want to talk about dialogue mm-hmm. uh, as part of part of performance. I I found myself uh, really enjoying certain elements of the dialogue. I mean, people have talked about the wooden dialogue and that kind of stuff, but I think there's a, there's a lot of things uh, in Phantom Menace that's very quotable uh, and very important moving forward. Uh, I enjoyed right away that you know the first act. I mean, it's not the first bit of dialogue, but it, it feels like it's the first bit where you know Obi Wan takes up his hood and it drops immediately. I have a bad feeling about this. That's always a fun Easter egg to pull out. I love that it's Obi Wan. Uh, off the bat that does that. I think one of my favorite, well, there's my favorite line in, in the film is Qui-Gon saying to Anakin that your focus determines your reality. And I mean, that's, I've looked at that for a while now is just being, you know, that's a good motto for life. And, you know, it's a, I made a poster and it's, you know, outside my classroom and it's a good thing to think of. But what I was struck this time with was that, you know, that's very much it's very prophetic for Anakin uh, in that his focus becomes trying to save everybody and to not letting go of things. And by focusing on, I'm going to stop death at all costs, you know, that very much becomes his reality. He's not able to look past what, you know, what he thinks he's, he's so narrowly focused that he's not even open to other possibilities of how to deal with his problems. And along those lines, it does make me wonder if Qui-Gon had been Anakin's master, would things have turned out different? And I do think that like Obi-Wan is one of my favorite characters, but it does seem to me that Obi-Wan is more of a friend than a true mentor to Anakin at times, especially when you look at things like the Clone Wars series. He comes off more as a friend. And I do wonder if Qui-Gon would have been able to guide him a little bit more with that idea of whatever you're focusing on, that's going to be what your life is. Yeah. I mean, that's how I've, I've come to think about dual the fates that really it's, you know, in a lot of ways for me, it's, it's Qui-Gon that if Qui-Gon survives that duel, 
then he becomes Anakin's master. And because he does, you know, he loses that fight. And because he's killed in that fight, fate now has Anakin on a different path. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, I mean, people have talked about that forever. And I, I do agree. I mean, he, that he was in such a different way. I heard somebody talking about this the other day. Um, you know, he might've been more, uh, more willing to take Anakin to go see Shmi, for instance, you know, he's, he's very much, uh, kind of an ends justify the means guy, but not in the, not in a, in an immoral way, but right. he seems to be a much, when we get to things about, you know, making the chance cube fall exactly how he wants it to be, he's clearly cheating, but he has, you know, the greater good is at stake and that's the way he looks at things. So. It would have been. I, I would. I would add to that and say that I think he views the world in shades of gray, rather than in black and white. And I actually think that it's a really interesting perspective for a Jedi to take. And I know that there's been talk, and I'm not even sure if it's canon about gray Jedi, but I feel like Qui Gon is kind of the Jedi who sees the larger picture, where he, like with the Chance Cube, if he cheats in this small thing he can see the much larger picture of, well, Anakin will be freed. And that that is a fantastic thing to do. And I do wonder if Qui-Gon had been able to train Anakin and, and guide him, you know, whether he would have accepted Padme and Anakin's relationship. Right. Because I, I think that there are hints that Obi-Wan knows. I think in episode three, it's pretty clear that he knows by that point. Right. And I wouldn't be surprised if he knew for much longer. And so... Would Qui-Gon have been able, you know, would Anakin have been able to share that with Qui-Gon? And if he had had mentorship in that, would that have turned into this kind of possessive love that Anakin has for Padme rather than what I would say is true love? I don't know. But I think it's a really interesting direction to kind of imagine how that might play out. Yeah, absolutely. So I had a couple other snippets. I don't want to linger too long here uh, on dialogue examples that I loved was, you know, one is, is Palpatine saying, we'll watch your career with great interest. I mean, that's just dripping with, with foreshadowing and which is, you know, if, if you're watching the film and that's the first Star Wars film that you see, it probably flies right over your head. But those of us that had seen the original trilogy first knew that, you know, that was, well, that's not good. Uh, and what's another thing that's interesting with, with this, uh, film is that you have this, you refer to the prophecy whole speech from Mace Windu introducing a concept that we hadn't had yet that really kind of the rest of the, you know, the rest of the prequels are, are tied into that where you have, you know, he's the chosen one and all that whole thing was not something that we were anticipating first time watching through because it's the first time we'd heard about it. Uh, for as far as, as far as body language and facial expressions, we've kind of talked about this already, especially with, with Amidala. There was a couple other instances that I looked at one. I did just, for some reason, always sticks in my head is, uh, that Anakin kind of scrunches up his face when he's shooting the droids when he's in the N1. I mean, that looked, that's a nine-year-old right there. Like fully, you know, you talked about this before, kind of a authentic nine-year-old experience. And then I just love Maul's face when he's cut in half. Just the shock. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so costumes, uh, we could talk about that a little bit with, you know, especially Amidala. That's, that's a thing that's been talked about a lot. Uh, what I think is interesting about it is that, you know, the costume and the persona of Amidala, you you can't separate those two things along with the hair and makeup, that those are all, Amidala is this construct that's made up of those three things. I think that's a really interesting uh, choice that they made. 
can't, I mean, if I'm going to talk about makeup, you can't not talk about mall and the tattoos. And, you know, that whole thing is a clearly very intensive process to create that character. Uh, we talked about in an earlier episode, talked about how, how Sheev Palpatine is kind of dressed like a chancellor even before, uh, before he becomes chancellor. And then another thing would be the fact that the Jedi have the Jedi robes is very much what we see Obi-Wan wearing uh, in A New Hope and that, you know, apparently Obi-Wan Kenobi hanging out in disguise or trying to be, you know, under under the radar is still dressed like a Jedi, which is kind of an interesting choice. But I mean, I don't have a problem with it, but other people have had theories about that. So uh, one I've heard is that essentially it's not Jedi robes. It's just that um, this is kind of how poor people, there's a, there's a whole bunch of people that wear these and the Jedi are kind of taking this on as, you know, these are our very humble, our humble costumes or our humble, humble clothing. Uh, so the next, uh, next aspect uh, that we should talk about is the setting and design, specifically locations, set decoration and props. Uh, one thing I want to point out is that there's a, a nice balance, I think, of, of real world and on set locations. We know very famously that they went back to Tunisia for Tatooine. Uh, and if again, if you refer back to the beginning, which is a great documentary, it's available on, on Star Wars YouTube channel, uh, that they had a sandstorm again, just like they had when they were making episode four, uh, which is incredibly ironic and kind of cool from a certain point of view. Uh, and then we have that Italy is there's a palace in Italy that was used for Thede's interiors, the palace interiors. But of course, there's lots of green screen, like when they're underwater on board starships and pretty much, you know, anything on Coruscant, essentially. And to add to that a little bit, I think the most interesting part for me about the locations is the contrast between the Naboo, the Gungans, Tatooine, and Coruscant. And it really feels like the locations really divide the different kind of classes. Like you, when they traveled to Coruscant finally, I mean, all Palpatine can talk about is how the bureaucrats have seized control of everything. You see these statues everywhere, and obviously you have like the giant city and everything. But just how different it is to then, you know, think back to Tatooine, where it's these little hovels in this just desolate desert. And then even Naboo, which is this kind of classical architecture but it's still very, very nice. And so I just think that they did a really good job with the locations and differentiating between the different peoples who lived in those spots. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that lends itself to set decoration as well. We, when we've talked about this before too, how you know, the Skywalker hovel is, you know, it's very basic and, and very low tech stuff in it all over the place versus just Coruscant's very opulent and you know, Theed is very opulent and it's, with the, just looking at it really quickly, you can tell that, you know, this is poverty, this is wealth, this is low tech, this is high tech, this is rich, this is poor. And, you know, it fits with the characterizations. Although with the Jedi, you can argue that, you know, this is possibly not what you should be having yeah. uh, if you're supposed to be, you know, servants of the Republic. Um, so it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition, which, you know, we'll we'll talk about. Uh, as we go through this as well, but just very interesting, very, I think, successful in both cases, like you'd said. Uh, with Did you have anything with uh, with props that stood out to you this time? Nothing in particular with the props. Yeah. Yeah, for me, th there's not a whole lot of 
uh, other than it's interesting that everyone has their own lightsaber, that there's not just one size fits all with the lightsabers. The one thing that stuck out to me this time was the the communicator uh, that Qui-Gon uses, which I've heard uh, repeatedly. The Gillette shaver. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that it's a razor, which is, that's cool. That, you know, you just took something real world and and, and tweaked it into that and uh, the thing this time that I thought was interesting is that, it, you know, it's also a way that you can send the blood work over. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of a cool little little tweak to things that we hadn't seen before. So characters is next. And we've talked a lot about characters already. I mean, it kind of lends itself to so many different categories we've already talked about with performance and lots of other things with uh, the camera work and those kind of things. You know, one thing that I that I wanted to talk about was the whole Qui Gon ends justify the means thing, which we talked about. Um, he's you know such a fascinating character. You know, introduces us to the concept of the living force, which is you know a whole other thing. That's a, you know that's a whole show unto itself. But one thing that I thought was really cool is that we have this whole concept of duality in in the film with with Padme and with with Palpatine. And, you know, this is a thing when, when I made the, the character chart that I intentionally put separate boxes uh, for Amidala and Padme and a separate box for Palpatine and for Sidious to kind of imply that they're two different people and, and kind of preserve as much as you can uh, the surprise for anybody who hasn't seen it. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to talk about was uh, that Anakin is very, uh, in this film, he's very letter of the law in the sense like, well, Qui-Gon told me to stay here in the, in the, you know, in the starfighter. So that's what I'm going to do. You know, he didn't tell me to fly off into space and join the space battle. Sure. And that's probably not what he meant, but what he said was, and you know, we're going to see that later, you know, in the next, very next film where you have him justifying things like, you know, we're encouraged to love, you know, if I do this mental <laughs> gymnastic, then apparently I can still get what I want, even though it's probably not what they intended when they told me to do it. Yeah. So moving down to uh, the galaxy, we have the force, culture, technology, and then species. And I think we both wanted to talk about the fact that midichlorians are introduced. I mean, that's probably, you know, when people talk about Phantom Menace, that's one of the things that, that comes out immediately. I'd probably say it's the most controversial aspect that's revealed as, as far as the force in this movie. Because right. some people love it, some people hate it, some people don't really care. What are well, your thoughts? Yes. Yeah, um, to me, it, it never bothered me. It was it was obviously new, but it wasn't anything that, in my mind, disqualified or went against anything that I had already thought about uh, regarding the Force. And you know, this is this is a thing that I'm always interested in. I would go back and do research and, and find stuff out. And and at one point, reading the fact that midichlorians were some of the early drafts of the original film, also kind of lends it a legitimacy that it might not other ha- otherwise have. You know, it's, it's been a thing that Lucas has thought about for a while. And then when you get into things like, you know, the force is strong in my family, well, you know, that could easily be a, you know, a way of saying, you know, like midichlorian counts are something that, you know, that's a genetic trait that's strong in my family. You know, there are, there are things I think that you can point to uh, in the original trilogy that makes sense that they, you know, that midichlorians would be something that could be there in the background, but it also makes sense that they wouldn't need to talk about it because, you know, midichlorians in this sense are used as a, as a way to identify Anakin as being something special. But I mean, Luke is special because 
you know, he's Anakin's kid, so they don't have to go look for him. They wouldn't have to, well, yeah, you're probably important, but we're going to need to do a test on you. Yeah, and and honestly, I was never really that bothered by it either, although I do understand why some people are. Uh, I think part of it's also that the Force is very much like magic in any fantasy story. And, you know, we know Star Wars isn't hard sci-fi. It's very much a sci-fi fantasy, you know, kind of mythic tale. And I think that for some people, it kind of ruined the the magic of it, having this almost a video game-esque, well, you have more power than me because you're, you have a higher metachlorian count. And I don't think people liked that aspect. And for me, you know, you bringing up Luke is really interesting because, you know, the force is strong in my family does seem to indicate that there is some kind of genetically passed on trait that matters for the force. But at the same time, a lot of what makes Luke special is that he's Luke. Like right. he cares about his friends and he's willing to die for them. And right. And so, like, that's part of what makes Luke special is that, like, he's a good guy. That has nothing to do with midichlorian count. And I think that some of the distaste for the midichlorians comes from that fact where you kind of brought up, like, we don't want to have to do this, you know, blood work test to see if you're special or not. It should be based on, like, who you are as a person. Right. That's never the impression that I, I personally got. But having heard that kind of stuff from other people, I like it makes sense to me about why people wouldn't like it. But it is also interesting that it never comes up again in any other movie. I don't think. Yeah, I'm 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 racking my brain to think of it if it showed up in. I mean, uh, it comes up in, in Revenge. Of, it comes up in Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, just a little bit, you know, in the in the Plagueis speech, and then yeah, Grogu with the M count thing. Right. And again, this, like we said, this is a whole show unto itself. We could get deep into the weeds with it. And right. I agree with a lot of what you said. You know, it's, it's, it's the Ryan Johnson thing too, of, you know, a hero can come from anywhere. It's not just who you're related to. Uh, but one thing I just, that I also really like about it is that this is part of that subverting expectations thing where we're coming into Phantom Menace going, we're going to see the Jedi in their prime and they're awesome and they are flawless. And then it's like, no, these guys you know, they've gotten off track. They are focusing on the science of this thing more than on the spiritual side of it. That is a flaw. You're supposed to look at that and go, what are they looking at midichlorians for? They shouldn't be looking at the science. They should be more in touch with the spiritual side. These guys are wrong. Yeah, you're supposed to look at it like that. You should look at that and go, that doesn't quite jive with what I was expecting. And be okay with the fact that, you know, we're getting Jedi who are flawed at this point. That's why they're able to be defeated so easily. Well, and not just overly scientific rather than spiritual, but overly legalistic. Yep. Where, you know, Anakin is very clearly strong in the force and he is clearly afraid. And so they don't want to let him into the Jedi temple, but it doesn't, that has never really made sense to me where you have this kid who's clearly afraid and clearly powerful. He, which should be the perfect candidate to come into the Jedi temple for training. Right. Because he needs... Like, if you're just going to send him off, he's going to, you know, grow stronger in the Force and not know how to control any of it. Like, he'd be the safest for both himself and for other people inside the Jedi Temple with proper training. Right. But I think it's the, you know, the masters on the council, they're, they're legalistic. Well, he's too old. He's too afraid. We, we can't do that. And in, there's no bending of the rules to, you know, the, just how we said, like, Qui-Gon could see the larger picture. 
the Jedi Council can't do that. Yeah, no, that's great. And that, that totally leads into what I had for for culture and technology and that. And this film, uh, as much as it's derided sometimes, it's it's funny that you know, this is the source of so much of what we know about about the Jedi. You know, we didn't know anything about the Jedi Order until we got this film. We had never heard the term Padawan. We didn't know how, you know, a master and a Padawan were paired off. That wasn't a thing that we had seen before. You know, and on the other side, on the Sith, we have the rule of two was introduced here. Uh, and the fact that, you know, Darth is not Vader's first name. You know, I remember that being a thing when, you know, we heard the name Darth Maul, that that was jarring. It was like, wait, wait a minute. There's, there's another Darth. How does that work? Yeah. So that was, that's kind of cool. That's the thing I like to point out to, to kids that we get a lot of, a lot of culture from, you know, those, both of those religious orders. As far as technology goes, uh, the things that, um, the thing I want that I liked the most this time through that I noticed a lot was just that we have, you know, Gungans with this whole organic technology, especially underwater. I thought that was a really cool, uh, thing that we had never seen before. And then for uh, for species for this one, I mean the Gungans is probably the the biggest addition uh, as far as organic creatures, and then you just have you know battle droids. It's not really a species, but it it kind of is. So they're kind of sentient. Uh, and what I always thought was interesting is that they're basically disposable. We kind of talked about this before, and uh, you know this is a thing. We even go into what we saw in you know spoiler alert the season finale of Mandalorian. And we see Luke chopping up droids that if we're going to have, you know, Jedi in battle destroying things, we don't want to see them, you know, chopping up live creatures. We don't want to see them killing aliens. We we need something for them to chop up and, you know, what better thing to do than droids. So to me, I thought that was a really wise choice uh, to make it something disposable like that, that we don't have any kind of emotional, uh, excuse me, emotional attachment to. Yeah, and I do think that's actually pretty interesting, that reliance on droids. You know, and I think part of it is also, you know, it's, it, it is kind of odd how you have the original trilogy and then you have the prequel trilogy and it seems like the technology is more advanced in the prequel trilogy. And so you have all these battle droids and all these different kinds of battle droids that we see. But I do think part of it does come down to the fact that the creators want a punching bag that people don't feel bad about. And I think stormtroopers were that for a very long time, where they're this faceless enemy that you can kind of kill without repercussion. But of course, you know, with The Force Awakens, we see Finn. We can't necessarily do that anymore because, you know, you're, you're killing Finns and you're killing, <laughs> right. <laughs> you're, you're killing people. And even the clones were meant to be that, although I think that, that was a commentary Attack of the Clones was making, is that these clones are not droids they're people even if they are you know cloned and, and born different whatever you know and that's more for another movie but i do think it's really interesting and you also kind of see this a little bit with you know an adjacent franchise with indiana jones and him fighting the nazis and it's like the nazis are kind of the stormtroopers of you know sure. of, of that franchise where it's like oh well it's okay if indy kills all these nazis because they're nazis I think it speaks to the fact that this is a serialized adventure film and not like a serious discussion of morality uh, necessarily. Yeah, you bring up some good points. So the last thing uh, that I want to bring uh, bring out from this one is that there is a hero's journey 
I think there's an abbreviated hero's journey of, uh, of Anakin in this film. Uh, and I've, I've done this before where I've showed episode four and then episode one back to back and tried to show direct parallels. And, and it's, there's not direct parallels between, between father and son necessarily in this film. I think if you stretch it out over the original and then the prequel trilogy, which will, which will do, you'll, you'll see a lot more rhyming happening. But I do think that in this one you get, you know, obviously you get the call to adventure uh, where Anakin's asked to go with Qui-Gon and then he refuses uh, and then ultimately, you know, is, is changes his mind when he essentially, you know, has that last moment with his mom. And of course you have the mentor figure uh, of Qui-Gon who then dies. And so then you have this second mentor figure of Obi-Wan who becomes known to him. You know, he wasn't, you know, introduced as a mentor figure, but he becomes known, which is of course a thing that happens a lot in hero's journeys. Uh, you have the first threshold when he lands on Coruscant. You have several tests. A pod race is a test. Um, there's a quite literal test in the Jedi Temple. And he meets the goddess and, you know, calls her an angel for good or for bad. Uh, there's the belly of the whale inside the droid control ship. And then what I would consider to be an apotheosis is when he's actually accepted into the order. He becomes a newer version of himself. And we kind of, you know, we see him at the end, you know, he's got the haircut, the different clothes and he's, he's on a different part. You know, he's transformed. Uh, it's not, you know, not a literal transformation, but it is, there's a spiritual transformation there. And so he's reborn in that way. And then of course, you know, by destroying the droid control ship, you have, you know, the ultimate boon. And then he returns and is kind of granted his, his reward is essentially, you know, becoming a Jedi or accepted into the order. So any final thoughts on the film? Well, I got one last question for you, which yeah. is where does Phantom Menace fall for you as a film, as a Star Wars film, as part of the larger canon? What are like, what are your just closing thoughts about the movie? You know, I, I, I enjoy the film. I, I do. It's, it's a little slow moving at the beginning. I think it works best in the context of I like the order that I'd like to show it in class where I do episode four, episode five, and then have it be, you know, the beginning of a flashback sequence. Um, and so you're getting the, this is going to be something big later. I think it works best that way, but that's, again, that's for an adult audience. That's, that's my perspective. You know, my kids love it. My daughter loves Jar Jar. It works perfectly fine uh, in and of itself. It's, it's fairly self-contained you know, a lot like A New Hope was. I think you can probably just watch that and, and be okay. But I will say that the last few times I've watched it with my students, that I just love the end. Like the last 45 minutes is just action packed. There's so much going on. I think the editing is really, really good. And, you know, that lightsaber battle, the three-way lightsaber battle is as good as anything you'll get in Star Wars, I think, at all. And I love the end when it's just the two of them. It's so fast. You know, the motions are, are, are totally legitimate, I think, in that. It adds so much weight to it, the fact that they're actually doing their own stunts. And then, of course, the music, Duel of Fates, you can't, can't do better than that. Uh, so the, I, I, I like the film. I like it. What about you? You know, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me because, like, when this movie first came out on, I believe it was VHS, and I was watching it, every single day because <laughs> and uh you know i was a kid and it's like during the summer every single day i had to watch this movie 
So there's there's this element of of kind of childhood nostalgia tied to the film. And it's like, I'll always love it if for that reason alone. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that the closing 45 minutes to half hour, uh, I don't quite remember, you know, how long yeah, the Duel of Fates are, but like that is some epic Star Wars action. And it's it's some of the best right there. Maul, Obi-Wan, and Qui-Gon is amazing. I think the, the battle in Theed is actually pretty good. Um, and like just the Gungan battle, all three battles going on is a really cool, you know, cutting back and forth and the space battle too. So you could even say there's a fourth. So I think the ending of the movie is, is, is quite good. I do think that the beginning of the film struggles a lot with the character building. And I almost feel like, you know, you're talking about the duality in present in the film. And that's kind of how I feel about the movie where on one hand, the design and the music are phenomenal. It's almost mind-numbing the amount of just inventive design that went into just Amidala's dresses and her makeup. Like there's so it's so rich and so amazing. Uh the the design of the aliens and the ships and this, you know, the set design is fantastic. And I love the point that you brought up where so much about what we know now comes from this film. And our understanding of Star Wars would not be the same without it. Half of me loves the movie for that. The other half says, I can't connect to these characters because I don't know who they are, what they want, <laughs> and how they feel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and that's not every moment of the film, but it's enough of it where I, I feel torn, where it's like, I don't know if I like this as just a pure film. You know, I, and I don't know if I, I, I love it on that aspect. I don't think I can love it on that aspect, which is different because as a kid, I loved it. I didn't care, whatever. But I think that's, you know, a bit of a transition, you know, my own hero's journey into a more critical film viewer. And, uh, but I do think that overall, it almost feels like this movie feels better to me as a story of like the mythic past. Like if I think of this as very much hero's journey, like beginning, I mean, you even have the virgin birth, <laughs> right? Right. And it's like, if I think of this almost as this old story that was passed down from the ages, then you can kind of forget some of the specifics that pull me out of it a little bit and say, well, it's kind of a mythic tradition or whatever you want to, you know, oral tradition. Yeah. And I almost feel like, I don't want to say that's what Lucas intended, because I don't know that and I don't think that, but it almost feels like subconsciously it was because there's such a dramatic jump from this film to Attack of the Clones for all of our characters, really, uh, just in terms of, of characterization, personality, appearance, all that. It feels so different where it feels like, honestly, the, the story really begins with Attack of the Clones, although there's also still so much you can't throw away from the Phantom Menace mm -hmm. because you, you would lose so much lore and – you know, the beginnings, they there are ties to the other films that you can't get rid of. And so that that's where I feel like it is kind of a movie that tears me in two. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, you get a little Ben Solo there. Take the torn apart. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's fantastic. Uh yeah, and it's interesting because you you know, you mentioned that you saw that as a kid. I mean, I saw it as as an adult. And so we're kind of like 
in the middle. Like I'm becoming more this, and you're becoming, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm becoming more childlike, and you're becoming more adult in this movie. Because huh? I man. have, you know, well, and I don't mean that. I don't mean I'm becoming childlike in the sense of like I'm becoming infantile. But I have kids, and so I yeah. I see it, you know, vicariously through them. So I have that perspective as well as my own, uh, and that you're seeing it, you know. It, movies are different, you know, when you see them when you're a kid versus you see them as an adult. You notice things that you didn't notice before. So, well, and all art is subjective, at least in Absolutely. some sense. So sure. it's like your subjective, you know, view and opinion of it's going to be different than mine, and and that's where comparing these things, going through these aspects. I mean, that's what's meant to do is to build a language and a vocabulary and a syntax and a framework to talk about film and to have a discussion that's beyond just. Well, it was good. I don't know why, but I liked it. Or the opposite. So, Yeah. That's awesome. On that note, uh, we just want to say thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, please check out our teaching resources at coruscantcc.podbean.com. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram at coruscantccpod. Or, of course, you can email us at c3podfeedback at gmail.com. And if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group, the CCC Common Room. It's a safe place to debate, collaborate, and ruminate on all things Star Wars, teaching, and film. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash C3, that's the number three, Common Room. And then finally, we'd like to share the announcement that we'll be participating in Star Wars Podcast Day 2021. On February 7th, over 50 Star Wars-themed podcasts will band together to commemorate the anniversary of Jedi Talk the first Star Wars podcast that premiered in 1999. For our part, Coruscant Community College will be releasing an episode to join in on the celebration of the Star Wars fan audio community. We're honored to take part and hope that you support all the great podcasts involved. Coruscant Community College. Because the Imperial Academy isn't for everyone. This podcast is not endorsed by the Walt Disney Company or Lucasfilm Limited. It is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. All names, sounds, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Disney and their respective trademark and copyright holders. The official Star Wars website can be found at www.starwars.com. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Coruscant Community College unless otherwise indicated. Nothing more will I teach you today. You've taken your first step into a larger world. We will watch your career with great interest. what you have done. Coruscant Community College, because the Imperial Academy isn't for everyone.